Hi, you're listening to another episode of the Resilience Project podcast. This episode is about the growing urgency to address trauma in our society today and how do we as services or partners in healing do it in a way that honors a person's story and grows a person's resilience? What happens when the work put into growing resilience doesn't stick? This conversation with Joe Crippenstaple gets to the heart of these questions and offers a ton of wisdom and insight into the work of trauma-informed care. Let's get to it. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your work, and uh, what about the work of resilience are you drawn to? Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, in my in my own work, I have just always been drawn to people who have endured hardship in their lives and come out of that in a way that has always struck me as really generous and remarkable. So I've always been really curious about how does that happen? You know, how do people go through what they go through and come out the other end being full human beings? I had also really been, um, over many years, just um, heartbroken at what some people have had to go through. Heartbroken not only about what people had to go through, but by how little respect and recognition and honor they've gotten for what they've been through. So, you know, they have so many times really horrible experiences and no one around them honoring that for them. So. Um, heart, I've been heartbroken for them, with them, and really saddened by the structures and systems that we have in place, how little they could offer to those people. I'm realizing that this work is about people who have history of trauma, and it's less about the offender. I mean, what do you think about the offender when you're having these moments of like heartfelt appreciation for people who have survived such mm. terrible things. Yeah. How do you how do you think about the person who caused that? Yeah. Well, one of the things I always remind myself of is that those people too have most likely had their own set of horrible life experiences. I mean, that's um I think we know that intuitively and um more recently, we know that um, is held up through research. So um, I try to remain um, in a place of not judging uh, those people. And sometimes the people who have caused the pain and trauma to the person that I'm thinking about or working with or supporting in some way are still in the life of you know, the person who's experienced trauma. So one of the things that I'm trying to pay attention to is what connection or relationship does the person who's experienced trauma still have with the person that was the source of that pain and trauma and trying to understand it from that person's perspective. And that's certainly more important than my perspective. Trying to understand it from the person, the offender's perspective or the person who's experienced trauma. If a person has experienced trauma Part of what they're trying to understand is why did that happen to me? Why did that person do that to me? So part of the healing journey is coming, I think, coming to terms with that in some way. So 
walking with that person on that journey as they try to figure out how do I think about that. That is my job. That's more important than me figuring out what I think about the person who inflicted that trauma. Got it. You know, one of the reasons that I care about this all so much is that historically our systems have said it didn't happen to you, <laughs> right? That our structures that we have in place um, don't ha give us any way of knowing or noticing that horrible things have happened to people and all of our cultural inclinations to just ignore it because it's too hard and too awful, you know, without some intention to do otherwise, our systems are gonna just enact what our culture does. And that is say, I don't wanna hear about that. I, I can't deal with that. That's, you know, that's not something that we're equipped to deal with. So part of the urgency for, for me about all of this is that people are, are coming to services asking for some help with something. And if we can't honor their story, then we can't honor who they are today. Mm -hmm. So we have to have some ways of being open to listening to people's stories and understanding their history, the, the past that is still very much alive in mm -hmm. them today. Mm -hmm. um, if we can't do that, then we are very likely to misunderstand how the person shows up today. Often misunderstand it and, and label it, right? And just give the person one more thing to feel badly about, one more label to carry with them, you know, whether that's a, you know, a label of uh, dissociating or being bipolar or having ADHD or being non-compliant or being a behavior problem or being manipulative, right? We are at real risk of seeing only what the person is doing today without understanding the history of why that person may have come to this as a way of trying to deal with and respond to the really difficult things they've been through. Mm -hmm. So stories are a way that humanize a person who has come into the system with a label and listening to their story and being able to hear what they've been through is a way to understand how they're showing up and how does that become a way for building resilience? And what what is resilience? Yeah, so if someone comes to us and some of the things they're doing or the ways that they're being are causing difficulty for them and perhaps for other people and it's getting them labels, one of the things we can do, as you say, is understand their story and where they're coming from, what their life experience has been. And when we do that, it opens up our eyes to seeing how the thing that they're doing today helped them survive during the very difficult trauma and uh, horrible life experiences that they may have had as a, a child or a baby or a young person. So we can appreciate, we can honor the fact that people survived this experience, they developed a way to be, a way to act that kept them alive, that kept them safe. And until we can honor 
why the person has developed this set of ways of being today. Until we can honor and have them know that we honor that, then uh, only then can we kind of turn a corner and ask the person to walk with them on their journey so that they're using, they're able to identify more constructive and more helpful ways to be present today and to move forward in their healing journey. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we can train our ears to listen to in people's story about their past and their trauma and their difficult experiences, we can train our ears to listen to not only what happened to them, but what did they do to survive. Mm-hmm. And when we pay attention to that and help the person name that for themselves and honor the person's capacity to have to have done that, right? That puts us kind of in partnership with the person on this journey they're on to move through that and on to mm-hmm. a, a good life. So sometimes in the stories of people's past, for instance, we hear stories about how they were in a situation at home as young children where he, he or she might have gotten abused regularly, you know, kind of ritual abuse, repeated, horrible stories that heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. And we learn in that person's story that what they did was protect their sister from the same abuse. And we can hold that up and explore that with a person. How amazing that was that you did that. You know, in the face of everything that you were going through, you found this way to protect your sister from going through the same thing. You know, that is remarkable. So sometimes when you're supporting somebody, they are coming to you with a ton of resilience that and might not be recognized. Yeah, yeah. Unrecognized by them, unrecognized by um, others around them. And when we kind of bring that out and talk about that as something that was present probably during their trauma experiences and still alive today, we can say, um, we can then have the conversation about how can we build that up? How can we give you more room, more space, you know, to, to pull that resilience out and have it be more a part of your life? Mm-hmm. So in the example that we just talked about, I mean, can remember this, this one person, you know, talking about protecting his sister. And when we kind of talked together about what does that mean to you today? And he talked about how really important it is to him to continue to protect people and animals particularly he was you know pretty articulate about needing and wanting more opportunities to do that as a way to to feel stronger in that capacity himself right so we were able to think about well what is it that you could do where could you go where around here in your neighborhood and in your community would be a place where you could help dogs and cats be safe. Really uh, leaning into, through building his resilience by helping him identify as being someone who protects people and things and animals that can't protect themselves. When When we lean into people's resilience, it helps us and them step away from the brokenness and keeps keeps us from slipping into kind of our cultural uh, inclination to, quote, fix broken people, right? When we can um, help people build resilience, 
that's entering into a different set of conversations, yeah. a different space with people. Yeah. So would you say that that is, that is what cultivates resilience, is, is being able to be in partnership with somebody who's experienced trauma history and helping them step away from the story of brokenness? I, th- I think that does help. I think just, um, as you've said, just the kind of this image, having this image of walking with people over time on a journey, those all signal to the person and to the family that um, we understand that trauma has a significant impact on your brain and on your body, and it is going to take time. And we don't expect change to happen uh, quickly and there will be ups and downs and we would like to walk with you over time um, as as you learn and as we learn about what it's going to take for you to heal so the the idea of journey over time together those are all kind of i think central to this kind of image i have of what our work is most about Mm -hmm. i think we know intuitively and we know through uh, more recently through research that connection with other people and connections and a sense of belonging with your place are the are two of the most central themes as we go along this journey over time. Mm-hmm. That um, if we can talk together about who are the safe people in your life now, how can we strengthen those connections? How can we build new safe people in your life? Where can you go that you feel safe? So and, that's the place that you mentioned, mm-hmm. belonging a place yeah. is, is a place you can go. Is that just a home or a service or? When I imagine what are the safe places for you as somebody who's uh, experienced trauma, I'm thinking about local neighborhood places. Where can I go in my neighborhood where I can connect with people and feel like I belong? in a way that feels safe to me. So that might look really different for one person than it does another. Mm-hmm. If part of my trauma history is um, you know, connected with food in some way, say food was withheld from me, um, I might not feel safe in any community place that has a lot to do with food because it's just too confusing for me or too um, hard for me to be around. So that might not feel safe for me part of the the journey with finding safe people and safe places is really listening to the person and discerning that together Mm. over time. So it's not to say across the board, somebody who has food in their trauma history can never go to a bakery, but just to say listening to the person and maybe trying different things to see what does feel safe or making that attempt giving it some space to kind of grow into a new story, is that? It certainly could be any of those things. It might also be a person might have had a, a significant trauma experience and feels anxious all the time, right? That's part of what trauma does to our body and our brain is that it helps us, it impacts our brains in a way that we are hypersensitive to threat and we might feel threatened or unsafe um, in situations that might look apparently safe to other people. So sometimes when that's the case, what people have said to us is, 
I can't go in that coffee shop by myself because I get really anxious going in any new place. But if you come with me, or if another safe adult comes with me, I'll tell you when I feel safe enough to do them on my own, mm. right? And part of what the person would be doing is trying to figure out, is this a place where I can keep my anxiety in check? Are there enough positive cues in this place where I can, I can regulate my feelings, regulate my emotions, and keep myself feeling safe in that space? How important is that partner in the safe space as the person's trying out someplace new and helping them or supporting them? And what is a safe adult? I mean, when you say that, I can understand what you could mean, but also what, what, what does that mean to, to a person who's experienced trauma? What does that need to look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I try to remember is that people who have experienced trauma, they feel alone and often feel a deep sense of shame about the thing that happened. And as a result of that, the impact on their body and their brain is to be extremely afraid of new people in new places. So we are always careful to use the language about feel safe rather than simply safe, because what I might think of as safe may not feel safe to this person. Mm-hmm. So your question about what is what is safe is really what feels safe to the person is what's safe. Sometimes it can help to have the company of someone who feels safe to you to try new experiences with when you know those new experiences will cause you anxiety. And so that can be someone who's a paid service provider. It could be a family member who's a safe person. It could be a neighbor who's a safe person. Part of our work with people on this journey is is helping them figure out who who are the safe people that they can turn to for that. That's an interesting thing to tease out because a person who has experienced trauma might see the person in their life who has been causing the trauma as as safe, maybe mm-hmm. or um, or maybe never have experienced. Is, is it true that they might not have experienced what safe really feels mm-hmm. like? Mm-hmm. And so this is a new experience for them Yeah. to learn? Yeah, especially if the trauma that people have been through is trauma inflicted upon them by someone who they trusted in the past, someone um, in a position of trust or power of authority. If, if those are the very people that have physically or sexually abused the person, they will be confused about what is safe, who is safe. I think confused is mm-hmm. maybe the word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So absolutely working through that with a person, um, that takes time. That is part of the, the work, part of the journey that you're going on with people. Mm-hmm. Part of what we make space for in in our project is for people to have a chance to have um, private time with a counselor about this. It would often be in sessions like that, but people can speak freely, can, can speak openly, and can speak over time with one person who can help that person 
dive into that conversation in a way that is constructive and positive and helpful without um, triggering more trauma, mm -hmm. um, memories and trauma experiences for the person. Mm -hmm. So it's talking through it and then also just experiencing it. And once you've experienced it over time and you see that person showing up for you, maybe you start to see a difference and make that comparison yourself and start to say, hmm, this feels a lot better when I'm with this person. Yeah, you know, absolutely that we're trying to increase the odds that the person has good experiences with a safe person. And as you say, then trying to follow that up with opportunities to talk about that, draw about that, make art about that. Mm -hmm. You know, how, what are all the ways that we can help that person who's experienced trauma understand and internalize the difference between being treated well and being abused? We have recently uh, come to appreciate that talk therapy and talking about it is only one way. And sometimes it's more helpful for people to have an opportunity to reflect on how did it feel in your body when you were with this, you know, a safe person? How do you feel in your body when you're with someone who's not safe? Helping people find words and language that makes sense to them. When I was with you, Katie, and you were a safe person, I had a glowing big heart feeling, right? And people use words to describe what it feels like in their body. We can then use that same language that they use, and we invite the person, let's pay attention over the next week about the people that you have short conversations with or spend small amount of time with that give you that glowing warm heart feeling. And let's just notice that together over the next week. And that helps people kind of pay attention in their body about when they're feeling safe. Yeah, and it's bringing a person back into their body. Yeah. Right? Who may be disassociating with it, who may look at themselves as unworthy or even like, you know, despicable or have these awful feelings about themselves enough to where they don't associate with their, their body and their feelings anymore. And so is that part of it is being aware of it? Yeah. You know, it in some ways goes back to our earlier conversations, right? We When we hear people tell the stories of their past or we hear others tell the story of, their, of the person's trauma, a lot of times what we can see and hear in that story is that the person had to become numb mm -hmm. to their own body in order to survive. Yeah. So numbness is a survival strategy. Ignoring my body is what I did to survive. So... We have to recognize that. We have to uh, we have to honor that for what it's been, you know, for that person for however many years, and invite them into a different way. Can you, in a safe way, begin to pay attention to what your body's saying to you mm -hmm. in the good moments, right? When you're with this person, can you pay attention to how your body feels then? You know, we, we have to really honor the pace that we ask people to do that. They usually tell us. And to the extent and the pace and the, uh, that people are willing to do that, we can help them find more words and more ways to describe it to themselves and to others. And then, most importantly, more opportunities 
to have more of those experiences that help them reconnect with their body, feel their body again. So it's about having experiences and then giving voice to those experiences. I want to ask, is, is this something you can do alone? Why does the system need to be involved? People who've experienced trauma generally describe themselves as feeling very alone. So most times what they are saying to us is, I've been trying to figure this out by myself for however many years, and I, I, I'm not making much progress. You know, they're saying that either with words or through their actions. So some real human beings have to walk alongside them. It's not a system that walks alongside them. Mm. It's real human beings, right, who perhaps are in a position of paid work through a system. But the, the system can't walk with somebody. Only a person can walk with another person. Mm. You know, um, part of what we notice is that if I, if I haven't connected with myself, it's really hard to connect with somebody else. So uh, it's not that it's linear and one has to come before the other, but we certainly can't ignore our connection. We certainly need to pay attention to the connection mm -hmm. that the person has with their own body and look for opportunities to um, strengthen that while we also look for opportunities to connect them with other people. Mm -hmm. Often people who've experienced trauma have um, a very limited, small um, set of contacts with people, limited set of experiences. So part of what we're thinking about with them, talking about people, talking with people about is how can you have more people in your life so that you um, can live a life that over time has more good days, more meaning, more joy, you know, more light. And so we would think with that person about who are the people who could be in your life in a positive way. And that, of course, is really different for each person. Um, you know, they might say, like the gentleman we were just talking about, I think I could spend more time volunteering. He might be connecting with people who have animals that need to be fostered, other people who are fostering animals, part of a network of people who care about animal rights, animal protection. He might walk uh, a dog that he's rescued with his neighbors, <laughs> right, who mm -hmm. are walking dogs. So it can happen in such an infinite, rich variety of ways that, um, you know, the whole art of it is finding what works for this person, where they live in their situation, that they can take some initiative and um, ownership around so that it doesn't require a paid person to support them to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think just making that distinction there of like the, the, the goal of that is, is not that he necessarily connects with just animals or with the volunteer role itself, but it is that he is finding other people to relate in his passion and, and, and those people then he's, he's building a connection with or he's building a network with that is beyond the system, that is actually sustainable beyond the system. We know that can happen. We know that it does happen. That, um, you know, when you walk the dog with your neighbor and you're having a five-minute or a ten-minute conversation, 
two or three times a week over many months, you get to know each other and mm -hmm. you find out that you have something else in common mm -hmm. and you want to watch the basketball games, do March Madness together, whatever it is, right, that has nothing to do with the dogs and the animals. Right. You know, the, the other thing that um, happens um, when people have a chance to do the first thing or do one thing is that they think about that themselves and they start thinking about what it means to them and sometimes they say, well, you know, I protected my sister when I was young and I was, you know, I'm really interested in in protecting and I, you know, at first I thought it was around these dogs, but now I think it's something else and mm -hmm. it's something bigger and different for me. Mm -hmm. And I want a, a chance to um, explore Red Cross. I've been reading about that and that sounds interesting to me. And I think I have a, a different role or a different contribution I can make. So you're talking about a life, you're building a life and life is constantly changing and evolving and shifting and... Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when people have um, experiences of significant trauma and in so many of the people that we support in our project, their lives have become so small, right? And um, so enmeshed with services and really so little opportunity to think about who am I, you know? So when people start listening to that and inviting mm -hmm. that, people, I think, are often surprising themselves uh, about what they're interested in and what they care about. And sometimes what people want to do is try out a whole lot of things because they don't know. And our respectful response to that is, great, let's try a lot of things. Uh, because if you're if you've had this dearth of experience, you need a plethora of opportunities uh, before you get uh, too attached to any one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that, the surprise that it can bring. And yeah. that, that I think surprise is often associated with, it can be joyful. Why, why do you think it's urgent to help systems understand that people that they're supporting can have trauma? Well, I think our, our systems have just years and years of experience in ignoring trauma so we can look around us and see what happens when we ignore trauma. We invest a lot of time and energy in trying to quote fix the person and that usually means fixing the way the person is as best they know how to be in the world because of the trauma. We invest a lot of time and energy in trying to make the very things that kept the person alive and survive, we try to make those things go away because they seem bad to us. We know that that, that person will only chalk that up as one more experience of having been mis misunderstood and they will just be further harmed and further traumatized so by our system. That idea you were saying earlier, just this idea that, the, that there's a need to fix the problem, that there's a brokenness that needs to be fixed, and that's the lens that is often taken to. Yeah. You know, the, the, one of the truisms, one of the, the quotes in our trauma work is, we don't ask what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. So ignoring people's trauma is investing in systems that only ask the question, what's wrong with you? And when we do that, the person suffers. That's the most important thing. The services are disheartening for the person and the people who work there because they see that 
no goods coming into this thing that I'm calling a service. So people in the service system get disheartened, uh, burnout, sad, angry, you know, just it's bad news all around. And because it further inflicts trauma, it ends up costing the collective we not only heartache, but real money Mm -hmm. because it's expensive to keep people isolated and <laughs> and to treat only the symptoms of their experience. That's yeah. A, it's an expensive proposition. Yeah. It's a really inefficient way to get at a solution that, that seems to have been worked at for, for decades. Mm-hmm. And, and so is this urgency in some ways a call to get back to the original reason that the, that the services were were built to begin with. Well, you know, the, the, the phrase trauma-informed care has at its heart the word care. And our systems were designed to provide care. And we just got lost along the way. And uh, care has been kind of turned upside down and inside out to be things that are not helpful to people. We have um, this new interest in trauma-informed care, and I, I think so much of that can be credited to people who are the survivors of trauma, who have been generous enough to share their experiences with us, right, sharing their story. And uh, they give eloquent voice to the tragedy um, in their lives that happened under the guise of, quote, services. And powerful testimony to the people in services who did things differently and saw them as human beings, saw their whole story, walked with them over time, and helped them heal. Mm -hmm. So when we hear that lived experience, it just, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of people, it just opens our ears, opens our hearts Mm -hmm. to, yeah, we can remember the real roots of our work here. And really care for people in a way that sees the whole person and honors their whole life. Yeah, and that idea of burnout, I mean, that word in in itself can feel disrespectful to the people who are being supported. And, And I think the way it's been responded to in the past is this idea of, well, you as a provider have to take care of yourself because what you're doing is so hard. Instead of looking at it as, well, why is what you're doing so hard? And maybe can we make it so that it works? This new way of doing things is a, is a is an answer to renewing um, and refreshing and re-energizing the people who care so much. And in that sense, it's, a, it's an antidote to burnout. Yeah. Can you imagine how that must feel to think that your life has caused somebody to feel like they can't do their job anymore because it's so awful. Right. I mean, that's just another load I have to carry. Right. And another reason that I think I am, I'm a burden yeah. to the world. What I hear people say who are walking with the people who have experienced the trauma is they say, I can't believe what this person has been through and they use different words, but how generous, how strong, how kind, how thoughtful they are today. And that energizes me. So I I don't think our stories about that get the airtime or the press time Mm. that burnout does. Yes, Uh, yes. Where there's this phrase called secondary trauma that's what you describe as the 
quote, trauma I experienced from being with you because you've had so much trauma. So someone, uh, this wonderful woman in our project said, you know, why don't we talk about secondary resilience? Yeah, I love that. What happens if the work to help build resilience in a person's life doesn't stick? What happens in practice when it doesn't work? Maybe they leave the program because they say, this isn't for me. You know, what's at stake there? Katie, when I hear um, expressions like, if it doesn't stick, maybe under that is this notion that healing is a linear process, that you take step one, and then you take step two, and then you take step three. We, we so love to imagine that that's the way the world works, and we're so seduced by that, right? The story of any of our lives, and especially the life of somebody that's experienced trauma, is we go along, some things work, some things don't. We take a few steps forward and a few steps back. Some things stick, some things don't stick. And we hope that we have the people with us and around us when they don't stick that say, okay, so this is one of those things that didn't stick, but we are sticking with you. Mm. <laughs> and So there that is, again, the importance of building a connection or building people into your life who are safe, who are going to help you have new experiences. They are there throughout the journey. Yes, and if I, am, if I have experienced that, that trauma, I want people around me who appreciate that I will not always be moving forward, that there will be times when I'm stepping, stepping, stepping back. So my whole life has been about blame and shame. And if you shame me because something didn't stick, I'm only going to think about you as one more person in my life who's having me feel this shame and blame, right? It, it'll be part of my whole pattern of experience. What will be different is if you say, I'm sorry that didn't work for you. I'm sticking with you. And I want to help find the, something else that will work. Or I'm going to stick with you during this rough patch. Mm. It reminds me of uh, one of the most amazing moms that I've met in my work in supporting people who, who've been through these really hard times. And her son, her adult son, had developed an addiction to alcohol as a result of his childhood trauma, um, sexual abuse by a trusted figure in his school. And she understood that story, and um, she was offering to help, to have him come live with her during a rough period in his life. And she said to him, I want you to live with me, even if you can't stay sober mm. during all this time. Mm-hmm. I still want you to live with me. And to me, that was, um, that was a story that she told me probably 20 years ago, and it still informs me, because I think... She could have said, oh, you're going to AA and it didn't stick, so you can't live here till you're sober. Right. But that was a very different, understa- her understanding of this is a up and down, back and forth, one step forward, one step back, but we're, we're together in this. That sounds like love to me. Mm-hmm. Like an unconditional sticking with. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the layers of this that's really confusing for people who are uh, providing services is this whole notion of choice. People really getting um, tripped up about, well, he chooses to drink, 
or she chooses to be with her abusive boyfriend, you know, as if that were the end of that discussion. When we understand and, and are really using a, a different framework, we can say, what else is going on here? And what other conversations do we need to have? Who else is in her life that she can talk with about this? Mm -hmm. And we can keep it as um, hold this whole series of questions and conversations around it and not have it be the end conversation. She chose this, he picked that. Mm -hmm. We can use choice as an escape hatch, I think. Yeah, well, it's blame. Mm -hmm. You know, that understanding that something happened to create the addiction to alcohol and then empathizing with that enough to say, okay, this is, this is going to take some time, but I'm here. And I'm sure it comes with its own set of standards, right? Like she didn't say move in and... Anything goes. Anything goes, yeah. But hey, we're going to get through this, mm -hmm. you know, and then, so I have more expectations for you. But in the process, I know it's going to look a little messy. Yeah, it's going to be messy. It's not going to be linear part of if I have significant if I have suffered a significant trauma then who I am and what I can do one day is not going to look the same the next day right and I it will not help me if you tell me I am being inconsistent or point out that I did it yesterday and I should be able to do it today mm -hmm. that is only going to make me feel more badly about who I am mm -hmm. so just kind of just an appreciation for what the, the what the person has to do with their body and with their brain and in their body and in their brain you know to overcome the impact that this trauma has had on them um, and that as you say that that's just going to take time do you think it takes a team of professionals to to help a person on their healing journey do you think it takes i am sure that there are endless examples of people who have healed without professionals. I have no doubt about that. And I, I think in places where cultures are rich and traditions and rituals have um, lasted through time, um, that there is a way, there are ways. Um, I think there are many wise people um, in our neighborhoods and in our communities who have held on to those. I think many of our spiritual traditions, the best of our spiritual traditions, um, give us ways into that. Um, so in no way do I think it's always necessary for a person to be supported by a team of paid professionals. The people that we're working with and learning with in our project are already enmeshed deeply in systems. You know, that's, that's kind of like how we get to meet them. I do believe that those people over time can lead a life without um, a team of professionals around them. I don't think this is, has to be forever. Services, services are slowly building trust up with people that, that, they, that there's a chance um, and for the interactions to be different, the supports to be different, mm -hmm. experience of quote, getting help is, it can be a really different thing. Yeah. Last question. What's the best advice you've been given on how to build resilience? I don't know if this counts as advice, but it, it certainly was 
an insight to me that helped me understand differently what people have gone through. And this comes from the work of Bessel van der Kolk and his advice, his insight that trauma doesn't live in the memory, it lives in the body. And you know, his book is The Body Keeps the Score. And to me, that was just an epiphany. I kind of had this notion that when really bad things had happened to a person, that they, quote, remembered them, and that was the problem. And now I understand that the whole body lives that trauma every day. It's not a memory in the mind. It's a complete present body experience for people who have not worked worked through that trauma. That insight and that idea helps me so much better understand people's stories and, and understand what the possibilities are today. We certainly have a lot more than we can offer to people than talking about their memory, right? Which is kind of like the old way. Yeah. And now we know that if trauma lives in the body, that there are things we can do with the body things we can things we can offer people like um, yoga like tai chi um, like singing um, like singing together with other people that are you know just quick examples of body um, ways to engage the the healing of the whole body and the mind body right so to me that um, it helps me be more empathic it helps me understand the, the wide breadth of possibilities for people outside of the traditional and gives me just really tremendous hope for individual people and for us connected with services about the rich variety of things that we can do and offer Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for more links and resources.